Well, welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation here at General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. We know that conversations matter, so this week we have grinded through the critical research to bring you the best stories and best people to have uh, great conversations. The General Assembly Podcast Stage is sponsored by Good Faith Media and CBF Benefits Board. We're also brought to you by the Clergy Confessions Podcast, a new series coming in August of 2022. Listen to ministers sharing truly awful experiences and anonymity. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Crump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest is Brian Kaler. He's the editor and president of Word and Way. He also hosts the Baptist Without an Objective podcast. Brian, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. A longtime listener, first time guest, so it's fun. All right. <laughs> You're the person that's in Missouri. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, how, did, how did you get into journalism, specifically the intersection of, of religion and politics? Yeah, so I've always been interested in religion and politics. And I enjoy writing. And so actually, while I was in grad school at the University of Missouri, I started writing for Ethics Daily and just kind of sent a couple of things in and started writing more and more for them. And then even after I became a professor, I kept doing that on the side. And then I eventually left teaching to focus more on writing because I really enjoy the writing for the larger public audience. So... um 
you know, journalism is such a fascinating thing nowadays. I was just having a conversation with somebody recently uh, about the shift that occurred in journalism, and really I think it was with the prevalence of the internet of not just credentials, but credibility around journalism. So how do you, in your writing, seek to be credible uh, in, in the things that you're trying to address? Because you're addressing some pretty heavy things. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and you know, it does come down to double-checking quotes. You know, when I'm listening to a recording that I've made or that's online, that I'm checking the quotes, I, I go through and listen to them again after I've typed it up, as I'm reading through it, the proofing. Uh, but then also there's that sense of like fairness of can I defend what I've written? If someone's going to push back, can I say maybe we have a, a disagreement about the big picture implications of something, but can I say that what I wrote is at least fair? And so yeah, we are losing a lot of that credibility, partly because online it's not just that there's, there's so many things, but there's so many publications, if you will, or so many sites that aren't trying to be honest and fair, that are deliberately providing disinformation. And what that tends to do is to destroy the credibility of everything. We don't trust anybody now. So would you want our listeners to know about Word and Way? How did it get started? Uh, how did you, you know, yeah. uh, come, come to the helm of it? And uh, what was the kind of vision behind it? Yeah, so Word and Way started back in 1896. And it started as an independent publication to tell about Baptists of both the North and the South at that time. And in multi-state and even territories, we had at one point in the late 19th century, early 20th century, writers and editors in multiple states in Oklahoma and Indian Territory before they were states. And so it had this vision of telling a broader story across these denominational lines, regional lines. That went on for about 50 years. The second life of Word and Way was as the official publication of the Missouri Baptist Convention. So it became focused on one state and on the Southern Baptist. And then about two decades ago, it went back to that original vision. Let's talk about more types of Baptists. Let's look at a broader regional and even national perspective. And so then when I came in in 2016, right at the end, we were already pretty solidly into that vision. And so what I've been doing is focusing on, hey, let's expand our website. Let's get into podcasting. We have an e-newsletter, a public witness now that we blast out reports with that as well. And so just new ways of telling stories about Baptists across denominational lines and other Christians across our country. Yeah, I wonder for you, kind of as you know, under your leadership, you think about the legacy of what was started and what has come to today and how that bears influence into how you approach you know, the, the subject matter you're going to cover, the opinion pieces that you're going to, to post. Yeah, and it's fun to go through the archives. So we have our archives pre-1980 have been digitized. Uh, we worked with William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri with a grant, and they were able to digitize our archives. So I enjoy going and kind of reading, like, well, what did an editor say about this? You know, so for instance, recently we were talking about school prayer because of some of the Supreme Court rulings. And so I went back to see, well, what did, the, what did Word and Way say after the Supreme Court ruling in 1962? And our editor was praising the decision and saying, this is great, this is religious liberty, that the Supreme Court was saying that we can't have forced government prayers in public schools. And so it's nice to know that you know, we're holding to that historic tradition, those historic Baptist beliefs, even though sometimes the criticism I get is, you know, what's happened to the word away? Why did you go so liberal? And I'm like, well, we didn't change. I'm writing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it would be fascinating, you know, uh, to repost some of those articles, you know, as, as you say, here's where we've been and here's where we're going. Yeah. Um, 
I'm chuckling earlier because my wife makes, well, she doesn't make fun of me, but you know, we all have those certain words that we like mispronounce. Ambulance is one of those words I have a really hard time saying. I'm talking earlier about philanthropic or philanthropy mm. is one of those. Adjective is one of those words. And when I first read, I'm always like, adjective. So the podcast is Baptist without an adjective. Uh, tell us uh, the approach behind it, what you're trying to cover in the podcast. Yeah, so that was the first podcast we launched in 2018, and part of that was that vision that we had when we were founded of different types of Baptists. And so this idea of whether you're Cooperative Baptist or American Baptist or Southern Baptist or National Baptist, as well as a number of different International Baptists, just having conversations with different types of Baptists so that we can learn from that. And we also now have Dangerous Dogma, which is kind of the same format, but it's a broader conversation beyond the Baptist world, but particularly trying to lean into some of those difficult conversations in our society today. And I, I just, I mean, I, I think you're the same way. I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy learning about people to prep for them, to interview the people. You never know what they're going to say. Even when you think you know what the answer is <laughs> going to be, there's always something in the interview that's surprising. And so I really enjoy that format. Yeah, I, th I think for me, one of the life-giving things is you get somebody on that has had a book published and what I would consider to be a little bit more conservative of a publishing house, if you will. And so you, you're projecting onto them a worldview that I think they're going to communicate, and then they start talking, you're like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. you, you might be cooperative Baptist. Um, you know, it's fun to have those conversations. So let's talk about some of your recent writing. More specifically, you've written extensively on Supreme Court decisions the last couple of weeks. Um, you wrote a particular piece on how this connects to uh, white Christian nationalism. I'm wondering if you'll take us a little deeper into how you see that threaded connection behind some of these rulings and this prevailing uh, gaping wound of uh, white Christian nationalism in America. Yeah, I mean, I really do think that white Christian nationalism is the biggest threat to our democracy today. I mean, we saw that on January 6, 2021, but we've seen it since then with the Supreme Court rulings. I mean, we have a justice who has called separation of church and state so-called principle. And then we've seen the rulings where they're like, you know, hey, you know, fund, fund the religious schools and, you know, let's have prayer in public schools. And so this is definitely a significant problem. And it's not just a threat to our democracy. It's also a threat to our faith. It is a heresy that's done in our name. And that's why I feel a particular responsibility then as the editor of a Christian publication to speak out to address Christian nationalism as a heresy. You were talking about this um, a little bit earlier with uh, Beth Allison Barb. Of course, that wasn't uh, a live interview. That's an episode that's coming out. And, you know, we talk about that oftentimes in our theological perspective, and we have this as both moderates and progressives, is we're so easily get into an echo chamber of just hearing and reinforcing what we want to hear and listen. So through, you know, through your publication, through your podcast, what are ways that you're trying to uh, create an open dialogue with maybe people that aren't, you know, theologically in the same place you are, but, you know, I would say with your writing, it's not like you're uh, partisan theologically. You're, you're just writing on the news, if you will, and you do have opinion pieces and things of that nature, but, um, you know, how do, we, how do we talk with people who maybe aren't going to read your publication because they think you're too progressive or too liberal? You know, how do, how do we create those conversations so that we're not just all in an echo chamber? I mean, it's a great question because there is no space in our society today where those conversations are rewarded, right? We have the balkanization of our media, so you watch this network if you're conservative, you watch this network if you're liberal, and even in our churches are increasingly polarized and split. I mean, the one thing I, that I have as a legacy publication is that we have a lot of readers across 
the spectrum. And so I hear from them. Uh, and so we have a lot of very conservative readers that have been subscribing and reading Word and Way longer than I've been alive. And we have a lot of progressive readers. And so I feel like I am in conversation in some ways and kind of forced to, but it is still a difficult question because it's just not something that's rewarded in our society. And yet we need to be having these conversations uh, because otherwise we're gonna continue to see what we saw on January 6th. Let's, let's kind of flip over to um, some of the recent findings from a former denomination for some of us. And I don't, I don't want us to, to throw stones and, and to, to, to cherry pick from the side, if you will, but um, you have an interesting seat to this and the fact that you're you know, participating and going to these conventions and covering these things. Um, you know, what do you imagine is coming out of this? Um, do you think it's uh, talking out of both sides of the mouth that we're gonna address these things and we're gonna bring change, or do you really believe change is gonna happen within this movement? Yeah, I mean, so change has happened. I mean, I think that's the, the clearest thing. We've already seen, I mean, the Guidepost report was significant. There's been some reforms that have been passed from that. Uh, some of those reforms have been pushed for for you know, a decade or more by uh, advocates of you know, clergy abuse uh, victims and survivors. And so you know, I don't want to downplay that. There actually has been some significant things. But there is that pushback, and there's that effort of saying, all right, well, we, we, kinda, we dealt with that. It's time to move on. Let's deal with some other hot-button cultural issues. And so I think that's still the question on the table as to will they continue to take this serious in the future? And there's clearly a wing within Southern Baptist life that isn't taking it seriously, that's continuing to, to admire and to prop up people who have been perpetrators and have looked the other way and helped cover that up. And so I don't know. I think the verdict's still out as about how far it goes. And I think it's, it's, it's a good reminder to all of us, regardless of our nominational tradition, that you know, we're all vulnerable to this type of abuse in our own communities. And the question is, how are we going to respond when it happens? And how do we not develop that sort of culture? I mean, one reason why the Catholic Church and now the Southern Baptist Convention have the magnifying glass is because of their size. It's not that they're necessarily, you know, the worst offenders. It's just that they're large. So if we have reform in these traditions, it saves more kids, it saves more women, it saves more men from this type of abuse. But then hopefully all of us can be learning to be more proactive. It's fun thumbing through all the articles you've written this last year. So I wonder, um, as you, as you re-examine them, what, what was the most life-giving story that you covered? I mean, that's a great question. You know, I mean, because the, the, the controversy and the politics often gets a lot of attention. Um, but also a lot of it is draining. I mean, one of, the th one of my occupational hazards is that I'm, you know, watching all of these church services where politicians are showing up to have essentially campaign rallies in the middle of Sunday worship. And, and that's definitely not uh, life-giving, but it's important to, to name it, to call it out, and, and to condemn it. Um, one of the things I've missed the most during the pandemic is the ability through partnerships with Baptist World Alliance, and I'm in some, some leadership positions with some committees there, to travel to see and meet with Baptists in other countries. Because that is, in the past, like in a normal year pre-pandemic, that would, that would have been my easy answer. It would have been, you know, where did I get to go this year to go meet with Baptists in Poland or India or, you know, various countries where I've had the chance to go and meet and see what's happening on the ground because that is what really is the life-giving type of thing. So I'm looking forward to having those experiences coming back up uh, here in, in, coming up in the future. 
Um, and so that's, that's the, I think, the thing I've lamented and missed the most in the pandemic. Well, our guest is uh, Brian Kaler. Thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Uh, thank you for your continued leadership in writing uh, such uh, profound uh, news and opinion articles that is helping expand the worldview of, of Baptists. Thank you. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your... CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Our guest is LaTanya and Charles Penny. She is the pastor of Belonging Fellowship and the founder of Mary's Grace, an inclusive advocate for persons with disabilities and their families. Uh, LaTanya, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having us. I learned before, Charles is a golf coach. So, uh, and he's the executive pastor of Belonging Fellowship. Okay, and the executive pastor as well. So, tell us, um, w what is uh, Mary's Grace, and what's the story behind its formation? Sure, Mary's Grace is a nonprofit that we st that I started in 2013, geared to helping churches and faith communities uh, and schools create programs of inclusion for persons with varied abilities. Uh, our primary focus at the beginning was helping. Um, Nonprofits, as well as uh, private schools and churches, create programs of inclusion for children with disabilities. And we've expanded that um, by not just focusing on children, but focusing on the um, whole person. So from uh, childhood to adulthood, those with disabilities, we do the advocacy work. We train um, organizations and faith communities how to uh, make accommodations in their sanctuary, as well as in Sunday school lessons and things of that sort. It's named Mary's Grace after my maternal grandmother, Mary Stanfield, who believed that all of God's children uh, should be treated, treated equally. And so when her children were adults, she began to do foster care. And she didn't take the, the normal foster care kids. She took the kids that nobody wanted. Mm. And that typically meant that they were the foster kids that had special needs or behavior issues. And my grandmother's philosophy was on Sundays when we had dinner with our entire family, all six of her children brought their entire families over for dinner, whoever was sitting at that table was our family. It didn't matter what their ability or lack of ability, didn't matter their ethnicity, their gender, or their gender identity. Whoever was at that table was God's child and our family. So who else to name this nonprofit after but my grandmother, Mary, who's no longer with us in body, but it continues to be with us in spirit. Yeah, it's a wonderful legacy she's left with you. Uh, what, what kind of programs and ministries do you offer um, for persons with disabilities and, and, and their families? Sure. Most of our work is training the church to do the work they're currently doing in a way that is inclusive. So, for example, when he was a youth pastor at a previous appointment, 
He um, brought our team in to do the training for all of his youth workers. We created a sensory response team for their particular congregation because they had a person, a child, who part of his reaction to service was running. So he was a runner. So he um, had Down syndrome, and the service atmosphere became too much. He would then take off running. So our sensory team was trained and spent time with this, with this young man so that he would be in safe places. And so his family didn't have to chase after him. He knew who he, who he could reach out to when his sensory was overloading and he needed to retreat. So our specialty is teaching churches, pastors, and leaders how to keep you in service, in, in the um, current environment, as much as possible and create those spaces of inclusion so that if someone who has a disability wants to be a part of the service, no matter what that disability is, we teach you how to make those accommodations in the sanctuary and in the classroom. Hmm. You know, while many pastors are, are pas pa uh, passionate about certain issues, you're particularly passionate about inclusion uh, for persons with, with disabilities. And you were talking about this obviously earlier with your, with your grandmother, but I wonder for you, why did this become so important, not only for you personally, but also for what you do vocationally? Sure. So um, I was blessed to have twins, um, and they were born at 25 weeks gestation. So for the men who don't know, women carry babies for 40 weeks. Mine were born at 25. So they were born at one pound six and one pound seven. So doctors prepared me pretty early on that they would have their own challenges and face their own um, differences. I wasn't prepared to be a parent of special needs children. Once I adapted and learned to cope with um, having a child who had cerebral palsy and a child who was on the autism spectrum but later diagnosed on the spectrum, um, I was able to see how the church was neglecting even my children as I was a pastor. Mm. So it started when I was an intern at a church, uh, when I was at Wake Forest University. And I went to meet with the teachers and the Sunday school leaders and asked them, you know, to, you know, do some of the things that we were doing at home, some of the things that I knew worked with my kids. And that particular Sunday, their very first Sunday in Sunday school, everything I asked them to do, they did the opposite. And I realized then that even Sunday school leaders, even those who have the best intentions, miss the mark and don't listen to parents and don't really care if your child has a difference. So it became my passion to create spaces of inclusion, not just for my children or our children, but for all children so that they can come to Sunday school, they can come to Bible study, youth services, whatever it is that is going on in your church. They don't have to be isolated, but they can be included. It takes a little work. But all of God's children are worth the work. Yeah, it's fascinating. From, from a congregational side, many churches have done the work of making sure their facilities are inclusive um, for, for, for persons with disabilities. But their actual response to families that come or individuals that come aren't necessarily at, at the level of preparedness. So why, why do you think that is? Why do, you, why do you think most churches aren't truly prepared to be inclusive? I don't think they're taking the time. Is that what you would say? Well, like I say, with most work or around youth development and within um, worship spaces, we are individuals, and it's even scriptural, when there's a responsibility that's placed on the individual 
if you go throughout scripture, most individuals that God places a call and a responsibility for them to now uh, take on as their identity, what was their first response? I'm not qualified. This is uncomfortable. I'm too young. And so that's the same response with us uh, being human beings. So for instance, whenever we talk about doing uh, special needs ministries, uh, you have the individuals that unintentionally say, I don't know if I'm qualified for that because it's something that takes them out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is comfort. Good music is comfortable for a church. Good preaching is comfortable for a church. But what happens when you have to take that comfortable preaching music worship in the way that you've always visioned it? What happens when you have to be a little bit more imaginative and now you're stretched outside of your comfort zone? That's when you start to see people start to kind of shade, uh, you know, not even say sh straight away, but simply just kind of a little move back to the pack because it becomes a part of their calling and it's actually a responsible response i'd be weary with somebody that would always jump up and say oh i want to do it because at some point you you start to question their intentions but it's it's not easy work and so most churches just don't want to take the responsibility um and not saying that in a bad way yeah and some churches think it costs a lot of money mm -hmm. and it really doesn't right so yes you have to pay us to come do your training if you want us to do your training but you have what it takes already in your congregation. And most of the time, you have what you need already in the classrooms. It's all about using what you have in a way that benefits all of the children that are present or all of the adults. And I say a lot about children because that's where our work started. But my grandmother, Mary, um, ended up with Alzheimer's. And so I watched her progress to the opposite end where she went from a very fully functioning adult to bedridden and could no longer speak. But the presence of God was still with her in her nursing home room. Even when we played music, she would worship. We tried, we, I promise, we did a test. We tried all kinds of music. She didn't respond to anything but gospel music. And she would clap her hands when she still had the ability to clap her hands. She would try to hum when she still had the ability to hum. But it was because we took the chance to try to figure out how to reach her where she is. And that's all we're asking churches to do to journey along family, with families, to reach them where they are, and do the work that's needed to include all of our children. And, and if I could add, in the, the black church context, and it could be even within some other ethnic background worship spaces, disability was shamed in our communities. Mm. Let's not speak that on that child, even though it's a very real reality or in this case, churches, when a child has a invisible disability, mm -hmm. and now when they have a, a meltdown in worship service, they're thinking that the parents aren't doing their job of parenting. And so churches, some of our churches just don't know. Mm -hmm. They're not informed on it. And so I think that's another reason why some churches have not willingly stepped up to that. Sometimes the hardest part about these kinds of conversation is just to, to really kind of speak about things in reality of what they are. So it might sound harsh um, to get you to answer this question for us, but if you were to give a grade to the average church around its inclusion and care for persons with, with disabilities, what would it be and, and why is that? The average church, F, because the average church doesn't even um, have this on their radar. They don't think that they have anyone in their church who has a disability that's not a physical disability. 
um, being a pastor or being pastors, we've heard so many preachers tell us, well, we don't have children with autism in our church, or we don't have those issues in our church. And I jokingly say, let me sit in your pulpit. I might, I might, not, might not be a diet, um, diet, be able to diagnose medically, but I can see things that you may not be able to see. Mm. And so I think we are failing God's children, and we are failing as, a, as uh, believers because we are not including all of God's children. And so oftentimes, those who have disabilities are pushed to the sides, or like my husband mentioned, feel like they can't come forward or talk about their children's disabilities because of the shame that comes with that, right? And so I think we're all, a lot of churches are failing. And Belonging Fellowship, we don't always get 100, right? So there are times we may miss the mark, but we are trying to learn from every experience. Hmm. An F. An F. Yeah, I'm... I'm F minus or F plus or um, he might be more gracious than I am. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm saying close to the same thing because if you go to any church in this world and ask, are there any families that do not come to worship because they are embarrassed because they have a child or an adult who has special needs, is there something that hinders them from being able to come to worship? Each church would say, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the basic steps, besides inviting y'all to come in, and we'll give you a second to plug that in a minute, but what are some of the basic steps congregational leaders can take to lead their church into a broader inclusion uh, of persons with mental health challenges and with with disabilities? So the first thing I want to bring up is language is so important. And from the pulpit to the pew to the front door, the things that you say and how you say it is critical. And I, ha- I love the conference. I'm enjoying it. But even our theme, come and see. That is such an able-minded or ableist comment or theme of come and see. So for those who physically can't see, what does that make you feel like if you're the person who, has, who does not have the ability to see and you're invited into a space that says come and see? Right, so even when it comes to the language that we're using for our programs, don't call it a disability ministry. It doesn't need to be labeled as such. Call it an inclusive ministry. Um, We we teach people to call it whatever you want. Just don't put disability in it. And learning that in language, it matters in many different ways, that even when you're meeting people and talking to people, learn their names first, not their disability. Mm -hmm. Refer to them by their names. Use person-first language. And for the pastors and preachers and teachers, when you're teaching text, think about the text that you're using and the language that you're using about being crippled or disabled or um, repetitions of people being blind, right? So making references to people's um, disability in a way that is coming from an able-bodied person that can be very offensive. So using your language wisely. And then intentionally talking about and lifting up the text um, in sermons about disabilities and those who may have received healing, but being able to navigate those texts in a way that doesn't negate someone from being able to be present and feel like, oh, I didn't get healed, I'm not whole. Because healing and cure are two different things. So being able to navigate text in a different way so that when you're preaching about the woman who was bent over, the woman with the issue of blood, and you're saying, oh, it was their faith that healed them. What about the person who may have HIV and not be able to get a, a, a physical cure, 
but they're still whole, right? They're not broken. So learning to preach those texts in a way that is inclusive of, of people with varied abilities and making sure we're using words that include all people. So the first thing is watch what you say and learn what to say. Hmm. Where would uh, folks need to go to learn more about your work? Sure, I'll let him handle that part. They can go to our website, www.belongingfellowship.org, and then there's the More tab, and when it drops down, there's Mary's Grace, and you click there, and it shows you all the services that we have available for those to use, and then if there are any more information that they would like to see, then they can send an email to info at belongingfellowship.org to get that information. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Our guest is Mitch Randall, the Chief Executive Officer of Good Faith Media. He is also the recipient of the Best Dressed and Best Hair Award five years running at <laughs> CBF General Assembly. Uh, Mitch, thank you for joining the conversation. Andy, thank you so much. It is an honor to be here today. I mean, I'm getting best beard now, too. Well, hey, I appreciate that. Thanks. It is a, just yeah. a good, full, luscious beard. <laughs> All right, so I, I know this might seem like an odd question and maybe old news, but Good sure. Faith Media was not always Good Faith Media. So, so tell us about how the, the work of Baptist Center for Ethics and Nurturing Faith kind of came together and what that looked like. Yeah, thanks for the question, Andy. Uh, you know, the first thing you want to do during a global pandemic is start a new organization. <laughs> and so, you know, we thought, uh, yeah, this is a good idea. Uh, and it's been a success over the last two years. But we're not a new organization per se. Uh, we're the uh, coming together and bringing resources of two historic Baptist entities. Uh, the Baptist Center for Ethics that also went by ethicsdaily.com merged with Nurturing Faith that used to go by Baptist Today. And we brought our resources together and our staffs together to create good faith media. And it has been a seamless transition. Uh, it has been an honor to work alongside my colleagues, not only from ethicsdaily.com, but Nurturing Faith. And we've added some new employees along the way. So it's been a, a good experience and doing a lot of really cool things over the last two years. Yeah, let's, let's spotlight some of that work. Good Faith Media produces a lot of content, including podcasts and editorials and videos and curriculum and, and magazines. Uh, what, I, what is the why behind the, the scope of your reach? The why is one of the most important questions that we address as an organization. We feel like over the years, and when I say over the years, throughout the decades really, that there has been a concerted effort by the religious right in this country to dominate the discourse when it comes to issues related to faith. And a lot of times 
when they speak, uh, their words are covered, they're printed, and they have just dominated the entire conversation. And we felt like, you know what? We could bring all of our platforms together to provide an alternative voice to the religious right, to say declaratively that there is another voice within faith, and in our particular instance, within Christianity, that addresses these uh, issues through a Jesus world view. Uh, that we take Jesus seriously, that we look to interpret and apply his teachings to our lives and how to live out our faith in public. So the why is simply to provide an alternative voice to the faith voice that has dominated the last decades in the religious right. We think we've got something to say and we know that there's a lot of people out there in the world that have a different view than what's been expressed over the last few decades. Fun fact, every time somebody uses that term, Jesus centered worldview. Yeah. yeah. Johnny Pierce lifts <laughs> off the ground. Yeah, I think I saw him levitate just yeah, about three just feet off the ground just a moment ago. Yeah, I know it's hard uh, because there's so many issues that, especially over the last two years, uh, if you were to pick one, one particular issue or conversation or injustice that y'all have addressed through your many outlets, uh, mm -hmm. what, what would that be? Why do, you, and why do you think that's so important for, especially Baptists? Yeah, the one, uh, the one topic that seems to continue to creep up is this reemergence of white Christian nationalism and how it affects so many of our policies and uh, our way of life here and around the world. Um, there is a concerted effort globally to bring back this white Christian nationalism uh, to control people and this, this Christian nationalism in other countries uh, to control uh, policies and how people live. And it's something that is frightening. It's something that scares us. But we believe that there's a majority of Americans in this country and people of good faith around the world that understand the dangers of Christian nationalism and are willing to stand up, speak out, and step forward to not only combat it, but to provide an alternative understanding of what it means to be Christian and what it means to be a good citizen in their country. Tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the work um, you're doing in producing not just your own content, but um, you know, creating podcasts and videos and, and branding for other organizations. Yeah, one of the most important facets of our ministry at Good Faith Media is that we believe in the old concept that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so we are looking at, uh, we have looked over the last few years reached out to partnering organizations such as CBF and CBF North Carolina and some local churches as well uh, in, our, uh, in our ecosystem and to try to help them communicate their message uh, through podcasting, through video work, uh, through written materials, uh, helping them uh, you know, create a logo for a campaign that they may have. And so we find it very rewarding to work with partnering organizations because they know their stories the best, uh, but sometimes they need help in how to tell those stories and how to do those maybe in a little different way than they've done it in the past through podcasting, for example. And so they've come to us to say, you know, can you help us with that? And we are happy to do so. This episode is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. Youth Theology Network is your resource for helping high school students take their next most faithful step. 
Their online hub will provide you with resources for and by leaders helping high school youth discover their purpose. 100 plus vocational discernment programs across the U.S. to help students explore their call and impact stories to remind you of why this work matters. Like you, Youth Theology Network is dedicated to seeing students live out their purpose, passion, and calling. Connect with us to learn more on how you can partner together to support the next generation of leaders by following us on Facebook or Instagram or by visiting youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Our guest is Chris Searles, founder and director of BioIntegrity and allcreations.org. Chris, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. So BioIntegrity is a research-based advocate for protection and restoration of Earth's biospheric integrity. For those of us that uh, have no idea in what that means. history and literature and philosophy and anthropology, what is the Earth's biospheric integrity? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, okay, so the biosphere is the, the word that um, we use to talk about the composition of life, the sphere of life. Um, but biointegrity really began as a research project because I wanted to understand what's the biggest solution to climate change and the biggest solution to the extinction crisis. And um, I had a pretty deep background in environmentalism at that time, and, um, but not in conservation. And when I did the, the sort of database research, I realized that protecting the integrity of the ecosystems where biodiversity is most concentrated on our planet is actually this biggest extinction crisis solution and climate solution because the, the biodiversity tends to congregate in areas where carbon is really dense, where ecosystems are really dense and fluorescent. And um, this integrity, like your body, determines the productivity of that place. The, the super carbon-rich, biodiversity-rich ecosystems tend to be the most productive on the planet also. So they're kind of like vital organs for the planetary life support system. So back to the original question. The biosphere, the way I really think of it, um, the academic definition is just this idea of a sphere of life. But, but the reality is that there's only one biosphere in the known universe. We haven't found any microbes off of Earth yet. We don't have any indication there's life anywhere else. So the biosphere is actually biosphere Earth, and it comprises um, from both life and living systems, just like your body. Your body has organs, but your body also has bacteria and microbes, and that biosphere that is your body is hosting other life, and it's also performing its own functions uh, as a grand system. So the biosphere really um, denotes or connotes the idea of the entire planetary life support system that is dependent on the living creation, is the, the way I like to talk about it in this context. All of the life on our planet, which goes back billions of years. So, <clears throat> how is the vision of biointegrity uh, lived out practically? Uh, what does advocacy look like on a day-to-day on -day basis for you? Well, advocacy on a day-to-day -day basis is not, as, uh, not at all what I would like for it to be. It's, it's basically social media work on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and then creating content sort of weekly for an email series. Um, I have been doing a variety of public education presentations for seven years now. <clears throat> and started out um, in churches, actually, because you know, I'm from Central Texas and I had a big background in the, the interfaith community in Austin and sort of went there with the stuff initially. So the model that I have been working with is to sort of ask big questions and do deep research and then try and compress that information into everyday language so that we can become a more biospherically literate or ecologically literate 
people. Um, and that takes all kinds of forms. You know, every conversation, every email, I'm sort of in that space as well. But I would like to be doing more on a daily basis, for sure. Well, thinking through the, <clears throat> the theological implications of your work, there are um, quite centric into God's calling to, uh, to, to nurture the earth entrusted to us. Uh, however, the last time I checked, the earth has been ravaged by many religious groups throughout history in the name of God, more specifically the Christian God. So why is this a theological matter? And in a, what ways has our disregard for the planet's well-being been formed um, through not loving our neighbor, especially our, our neighbor that is unseen in other parts of town or across the globe? That's a heck of a question. Um, it's a really good one. That's a really, really good question. The first things that come to mind are, you know, being at the plenary this morning um, for the CBF convention, I was blown away by the attention um, and sort of foundational focus on care. That seems to be absent from the sort of cultural definition of religion or Christianity, in my opinion, um, at sort of broad social scale. When it comes to um, biodiversity and, and what we need to do, um, it's like the, there are a lot of environmental solutions we need, but, but kind of to your point indirectly, like um, we, we, we need advancement in our, our way of life, our ontological advancement. And, um, and so I think a lot of the theological aspects need to be better explored than, than I can really give for you right now. But for instance, um, the All Creation Project that you mentioned, in the spring we released a collection of, um, point of our articles and interviews on Genesis 126. And so the question of uh, let them have dominion over all the uh, life in the water, all the life in the air, all the life in the land, and everything that creeps and crawls, and the cattle that do all the work. And um, Dr. Norman Wurzba, we've been talking about a lot today. I hope he gets to hear this podcast. Um, he's a senior fellow up at Duke Divinity School. He's got, I think, five books now, and his fourth book is on this Genesis 126 question of dominionism. Are, are we um, being told as religious uh, Judeo-Christian Westerners or cultural Judeo-Christian Westerners, either way, what is being said in Genesis 126 when uh, God said, and let them have dominion over all the life on earth? Um, and the interpretation, according to Wurzba, has been miscontextualized over the last few hundred years as we have moved into city life, the sort of age of the enlightenment where we really did become separate from nature. We no longer had a relationship with cows or even trees, you know, we're, we're very much indoor people now. When that began, um, in terms of, according to Wurzba, the Christian theology, that's when it shifted over to this idea that dominion is about domination of other life. Mm -hmm. And the idea that let them have dominion is God saying to the followers of the Bible, this is yours, do with it what you want. You know, you're my favorite spoiled brats, it's your universe, you can destroy it if you want to. <laughs> and, and that is the way we have sort of moved, that's, you know, handy in the type of economic development that we've had and we get to enjoy here. But now we're at this um, critical juncture, and I, I want to make sure I say that, um, you know, we're in a, a number of extreme crises right now, and um, the, the conversations here are so wonderfully focused on care and transformation, and those are the two key values for how we move forward ontologically, how we change our way of life. And, um, and the second thing Wurzba says, 
is that the historical context is also just sort of uh, upside down and backwards. The idea that, that we would try and make the Bible anthropocentric, human-centric, that we would try and make uh, anything in the Bible about what's, what humans want is a very odd idea. It's, it's certainly not a religious idea. The, the, my way of saying this is that the point of the Bible is for followers of the Bible to follow the Bible. It's for them to learn how to live in their religious practice, not for them to use it to tell other people how to live, which is the world we sort of live in right now. And what Wurzba is saying is that the people of the, the time that the Bible was written, these pe people were living off of the land like indigenous people do now, not even like old, uh, you know, farmer Brown or the industrial farmers, really living close to the land. And so theologically speaking, there's a, there's a contextual reality to Genesis 126 that when, you know, God said, let them have dominion, every farm kid sort of knows, everyone who lives close to nature, everyone who's in contact with nature knows that you can't dominate another creature. It doesn't matter if it's your spouse or your kid or your colleague, and certainly you can't tell a cow when to make milk or command corn to produce, you know? The relationship um, between people and other forms of life just in that farming context is about being in relationship, understanding what that entity needs so that it can produce as well as possible. So basically you're trying to make that organism as healthy as you possibly can and you're hoping for the best. And if something is not happening there, it's your job to be in good enough relationship to then make the right decision to get things back on track. Same as a, a good babysitter or a good parent or a good teacher. Um, that's the idea of this, um, this care-based um, paradigm that we've, we've lost touch with because we've gotten into the domination paradigm over the last few hundred years of this rapid uh, development into industrialized society. And again, lots of great things about industrialized society, but now we have the opportunity to take this more core context that the people who wrote the Bible lived close to the land. They knew domination wasn't an option. They knew that you were in relationship with other life. So we've misinterpreted that word. And then again, to take the Bible and make it human-centric so that it suits the human uh, needs is a really odd way to interpret the Bible. And yet we've done this you know, for the past couple of hundred years um, very, very strongly. And then I think a couple of other quick things like uh, just as it occurred to me since being here, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, on earth as it is in heaven. And like, my dad was a very devoted minister. Um, I would say sort of a Baptist Buddhist or a Buddhist Baptist, something like that, but a, you know, a, a real Baptist minister. And he always had that attitude that it, it's more Christ-like for you to be yourself than to be like someone else, than to be like me. It, it doesn't even matter if you're, um, <clears throat> If you're Christian or not, you should be you, you know, and you should engage in your life in the way that is true to you. And I find that to be a very theologically grounded um, worldview that I sort of inherited from my dad, and, and he got that from on earth as it is in heaven, the idea that everyone is welcome here. And then this starts to uh, overlap with the kinds of things we were talking about in today's session, which is the, um, the sort of construct of indigenous cultural values where it is about relationship, it is about communication, and, and the, the simple idea that what each of us really wants out of life after we get our basic Maslavian needs met is to be important individuals in a nurturing community. And I see that in the religious text, that 
every individual is significant and that the community is supposed to be nurturing. And then yet I see the way that we're behaving in the larger American context and even certainly inside churches and inside all the, you know, we're in a pretty strange time uh, socially right now and we're not being a nurturing community. And so I think the, the necessity of, quote, saving the environment is about care. And this care thing is really about having relationships with individuals instead of trying to make each other fit into a Kardashian paradigm or whatever the thing is, keep up with someone else, be someone else. It is about this idea that, as Wurzba says, you know, uh, God liberates um, creatures into the fullness of their lives. That what we want to do is connect as who we really are, one at a time, in a community, all these things. We want to be seen, heard, felt as important individuals in a nurturing community. And that, to me, this indigenous value, is the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the same ideas, like everyone matters, go to the, those, those who need help the most first. The community is a, is a, a collection of important individuals. Yeah. You know, as, as a theological matter, there's several ways to look at it, obviously, too. You know, number one, you covered this good bit around what has been entrusted to us, how we're, you know, not called to have mastery and dominion over this, but, but to genuinely nurture and care for this thing. And then there's this other theological element of it that comes down to our, our love and care for neighbor because so many of our choices are out of sight, out of mind, and so therefore we, we disregard any effect it might have on others. So, you know, there's uh, becoming a heightened awareness around ecological racism. Um, you know, Speaker at McCall's uh, luncheon today was talking about how here in Dallas there's uh, multiple trash dump sites um, that were, were planned uh, improperly, but the life expectancy rate of those that live around there or have their water sources that are going through there are 20 years lower than those that don't live near there. I recently just moved away from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Exxon and refinery factories that are there. And uh, in the northern part of the city, it's, it's the same rate. Cancer rates are, are through the roof. Um, and, and it's an important element as we consider not just around uh, creation care, but also how... Um, the ecological decisions we have made are affecting others, especially um, our neighbors. How, how, do, how do churches get involved in your work? Uh, what does this look like on a, on a practical basis? Um, and, and why do you think Cooperative Baptists should be leading this cause? Mm. Well, initially, I'll start at the, the end of that. Initially, I thought Cooperative Baptists should lead mainly because everybody needs to lead right now. But then... Um, as soon as I looked more into the CBF, I really, I've been aware of it for years, but I really hadn't uh, engaged with it. And then being here today has just really blown me away that the CBF in particular is better rooted in these values of care and transformation than any other religious or even uh, maybe body that I'm aware of right now, ecological or, or political. Um, so I'm really, really impressed by the diversity of um, questions that are tr being addressed here. The, the church that I was raised in was, the, the way I always described it is like they were curious, what's the right thing to do? What do we do that's the right thing to do about everything in that situation? And I feel like to some degree that culture has really dissipated. Um, and then I come here to the CBF and I feel like that's exactly who this body is. So I'm absolutely enamored with the culture here and, and whatever is going on. Um, in terms of 
Um, what was the first part of the question? How, how can churches directly get involved? Get involved, yeah, there's, there's so many things that need to be done. So one of the things, and, and this is really even evolving today, we, I went to a different session and asked the pastors, what do you guys need from us so that you can get involved in dealing with this environmental crisis that we all face? The response was interesting. It was kind of like, ha ha. And then it was, um, what we need are people in the congregation who will take this on because pastors are overtasked. Um, this is not enough in the middle of the agenda. And um, so I would say first and foremost, what churches can and should do is engage people like me um, who are really, really dyed in the wool deep on this stuff to have the conversation just about like, where are we and what do we need to do first? And then the people inside that particular community will have a hundred different things they want to do. There's solar panels, there's gardening, there's, you know, um, recycling. And so you have to sort of work through that process. Another thing that was said that was really valuable was um, in this pastoral care session was uh, uh, I need, we need an interim process before we engage in hiring new pastors as like a make or break. And, and so in other words, the church needs to know who it is. Well, um, I spoke recently at a church and they were like, what can we do? What's the easiest thing we can do? I was like, well, what we can do is get everyone together to talk about this. Because mm -hmm. just hearing me talk about it doesn't change that much. It just gives you some new information to incorporate into your worldview. But we need to make a practice of getting together and talking about things. And then in one last quick answer, um, the biggest bang for the buck things you can do are support the, uh, what I call globally strategic conservation and restoration activities that are happening around the planet. Those um, are most impactful in the ecosystems where uh, they're most biodiverse, uh, where indigenous peoples are in the most challenged uh, place and need support. And so um, my project, Biointegrity, has been partnered with Rainforest Trust for about seven years because rainforesttrust.org is really good at finding conservation projects that can be as little as a dollar an acre or even 25 cents an acre to protect lands that are old growth forests in undeveloped countries, AKA the tropics where um, the, the rainforests are the most influential on the global climate system and have the greatest amount of biodiversity and are the most integrated into sort of the human rights struggle in the indigenous communities of the world. So by, by choosing the right strategic conservation thing, you can get enormous bang for the buck. You can invest $10, $15, offset your carbon footprint for life. You can invest $60 and offset, you know, the family. And it, it, the church can do so much. And you're not just offsetting your carbon footprint, this abstract thing. You're actually saving the ecosystems that have the living creation on it in their native form, in their old growth form. And that's, that's the best possible thing you can do um, in terms of impacting the solution in the most substantial ways. I can explain that a little more if you want to, but. It's, I think it's this, this idea of transformation that you guys are talking about here um, is key, the, the sort of middle thing I mentioned, getting people together to talk about it. There's just not enough of an awareness of how urgent, um, a res urgent this, these times are. And, um, and back to the idea of leading then, it's here we are, you know, in, in, uh, <clears throat> there's something like 900 people here. You know, if 900 people were really sort of literate on how serious the crisis is and knew that in addition to all the things they're doing for human beings, they need to do things for what predates human beings so that human beings can also continue and work on the environmental issues as well, we'd have a, a very different, you know, outlook on um, the sort of optimism of how we can come together and move forward in a short amount of time. 
Uh, and I should probably say one other thing too, I know I'm talking a lot, but um, we saw in COVID, um, the first phase of it when we all went into lockdown, that it really, just getting out of the way is the main thing we need to do. We need to figure out our economics in such a way that we're helping the least of these in all contexts, but in nature that generally means um, respecting the other lives of these other creatures. So you enrich the ecosystem, you protect the ecosystem, you stay out of the way, you reconnect the ecosystem through wildlife corridors and, and you allow it to regrow. Ecosystems are like the tissue in your own body. You know, they weave in, in myriad ways from microbially and all these other uh, relationships between the plants and animals. And that process is the best way to cool the climate. It's the best way to absorb carbon. It's the best way to protect pollinators and other forms of biodiversity. It's the best way to keep fresh water on lands, keep our, our lands cool and moist and, and productive and, and on and on and on. So the, the, that process of learning how and figuring out how to, um, can't remember the word, but indigenous communities, they have these sacred lands. They just don't even ever mess with these lands. You know, we, we need to move back in that direction. There's a lot of things we need to do, but in this direction of figuring out how to leave things alone, let them regrow naturally into a, a full maturity, which is, you know, decades. Um, and that's the paradigm shift part that's gonna be probably hardest because we place the most value on property that's developed, not on property that's undeveloped. And we need to go back into a, a wilderness integrated future to protect ourselves from the environmental problems we have now. Well, Chris, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for uh, your brilliant work in seeking to advocate for protection and restoration of Earth's biospheric integrity, a term I will now add to my vocabulary. Yay. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Have you ever wanted to study the life and teachings of Baptist ministers whose work in civil and human rights changed the world? Have you ever wanted to read and watch other speeches given by Dr. King? Are you concerned of the way King's life, teachings, and legacy are used by contemporary political and religious leaders? Are you a local pastor or church leader and want to take an evening course at a seminary? Apply today to audit the life and theology of Martin Luther King Jr. at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, taught by Dr. Lewis Brogdon. Visit bsk.edu backslash mlk to learn more. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 